0: Welcome to The Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture.
1: Hello and welcome to The Auditorium podcast with me, your host, David Bramwell. And me, Dave Mount. A little bit different this week. We're, well, I've, uh, got my sh- I've got my lovely shirt on there, my holiday shirt. The sun is beating down on I'm, us here I'm, in Kuala Lumpur.
0: I am amazed, actually, that we managed to wrangle this. this is I <laughs> The, uh, who knew the budget ran? But um, yes, what budget? But well, good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah, we're live. Well, we're not live. We're pre-recorded, but we are actually in, in Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia. You've not been here before, have you? God, no, 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 nowhere near. No, I, it's extraordinary. I've ba- barely left England in the last forty-five years. No, absolutely, I and mean, it, it's quite a place. I have to say, it's, it's impressive. I, I, you know, the, the Petronas Towers. We're we stood at the, the, the base of the Petronas Towers. Massive, massive, great uh, twin-towered structure um and uh, we're, we're here for a very specific purpose aren't we david we are here for look is that a baboon on a tuk-tuk does look a lot like <laughs> it doesn't it quite a it's quite a rich street life we've got Do you know what it's us. very
1: very different to, to to london this place i'm enjoying really, it i'm like i'm liking it here yeah yeah uh, we are here for a festival called the Tall Tales in Tall Places Festival, which has been held, I don't know, it's been held for countless years here now in, in Kuala Lumpur. Well, it's a hub for cultural activities, uh, Kuala Lumpur. It's where it all goes on. And, no, and, yeah. and yeah. And the story goes, and we think this is apocryphal, but yeah. the story goes that this originally was like a competition for fakirs or, or shaman to display their talents.
0: So they would do it at the top of a pole. So, so yes. the storyteller would climb... To to the top of it, which is of course an Indian tradition, isn't it, for fakirs like to be on there? It's funny that it should be here, but it does seem to have translated that way. They're on the top of a tall pole, they, they yeah. stand or sit or whatever, but rather than be, meditate, they they so make up. Make up a story on the spot, and whoever whoever got up the the highest pole
1: and told the tallest tale, that was was the winner of the competition. Absolutely, and, and then it's over the. Decades and centuries, it's evolved into this, which it's is mutated. a huge international. Well, although
0: apparently it was the, it's the national museums initiative. They're trying to bring back this idea. Really? It died off for a while, but right. and that's why they've chosen the, the modern equivalent, which is the Petronas Towers. We're here because we have brought one of our auditorium speakers. We have to a take contender. Part. Absolutely, we have. We have.
1: It's uh, going to uh, be performing the Petronas Philharmonic. And this is the first time I think there has been a British uh, entry. Yeah, that's a right. Entry. And, and his name is Rohan Krivacek, and he is a, uh, an author and a musician, and Rohan has got this extraordinary story to tell about how he has spent many years uncovering an, an oppressed, a
0: repressed art form, musical art form known as funer- funeral Violin. Inn. Yes, that's right, and, it, and it, it does bear with this one because it takes a while, but then you will be drawn in and you will realise something quite extraordinary is going on. There is more to this than meets the eye. So and pay attention. And ear, and and, yes. we're,
1: and we're hoping we're hoping if the judges if the judges can, can can follow it sufficiently and bear with it, then then there's going to be a good payoff. Yeah, it's a and slow burn. We've got our fingers crossed here yeah. uh, that that we, we could make an impact at this festival. <laughs> so um, yeah, bear with us. Enjoy Rowan Krivacek.
2: Good evening, everybody. When I was asked to do this talk, my initial response was absolutely not for reasons I'll go into in shortly, but I decided I was going to take the plunge because there's a few things I do need to say about what happened. I was the acting president of the Guild of Funerary Violinists. I'd written a book revealing all of its history. I, I was very proud to say that Funerary Violin was being recognized and acknowledged as the great art it was and everything was on a high. Things have changed, unfortunately, since then. Effectively, there has been a coup at the Guild of Funerary Violinists and I have been ousted. But anyway, let's start at the beginning. You know, a lot of people ask me w- what funerary violin is. Well, funerary violin is, is an ancient... Fo- well, it's not that ancient. It started in the mid-1500s. A form of traditional violin music that was originated to accompany the coffin to the graveside during the very turbulent transition between Catholicism to Protestantism. Now, a lot of people also ask me why we don't know about it today. I mean, part of that is fashion's change, but there has been a conscious effort to expel the history of funerary violin. One of the other reasons why funerary violin fell into disrepute is down to men like John Donne. He was very high up in the Guild of Funerary Violinists at one point, but he essentially bastardised the tradition in the latter half of the 19th century by turning it into a cabaret act. This, this caused, you know, ob- obviously this was at a time when funerary violin was no longer so traditional. People were laughing at it at that point. So we've had a combination of uh, expungement from history and satire that, that destroyed it. But let's, let's go back to the beginning of the history. Where did it all start? It started with a man called George Babcock. George Babcock was in, in amongst um, the, the performers who worked at Shoreditch and later at Blackfriars in the 1560s, 1570s. He was a violinist. Um, he, was a, he was one of the earliest known violinists in this country because, um, as, as I'm sure many of you are aware, the violin was only invented in about 1450 by a man called Andrea Amati. And um, uh, uh, Thomas Cromwell, who's currently actually extremely fashionable because of Wolf Hall, he was sent by Henry VIII to go to Italy and bring back a troupe of musicians to work at Henry VIII's court. And he brought back a troop, uh, a troop led by a man called Ambrose of Cremona. Um, now, they brought the first violins into England. So this was the very first time this new instrument, which had more power, and therefore could be played outside than the viol, which was the previous instrument that had been played. This was a powerful instrument, and it, it obviously greatly impressed initially. Now, Ambrose of Cremona and his troop, they did get into trouble, because, as you can imagine, working for Henry VIII is complicated. <laughs> they were Jews. Um, they were Jews who had converted to Christianity, but within two years of arriving in England, they were arrested for being Jews and put in prison. Um, three members of his troop died. Then two years later... They, they were released and f- went back to Cremona. And for some reason, Ambrose came back and then had a very illustrious career as um, the head of um, music for Henry VIII and later even Queen Elizabeth. Um, but the interesting thing is what happened to the violins that belonged to the other players. It's known that they had them when they were put in prison. It's known that George Babcock's father was one of the jailers. And 20 years later... George Babcock turns up in Shoreditch, performing on the violin. Now I must say, um, there have been legal issues. i have been banned by the Guild after a a rather horrible American legal dispute. I I don't know if you follow American courts, they are crazy. In England, you expect a certain amount of justice. In America, it is all about money. So when the Guild got involved, trying to claim that this history was theirs and not mine to present, This caused me a lot of problems, obviously. But the the end result was I'm not allowed to use their archives, but they can't stop me from using my book because you can't rewrite history. This book's out there already. So I'm allowed to use all the images from my book, but not the original images. Now, as I say, it all started with, with Babcock, but... I I don't have time to go into how it started, but very quickly this notion of funerary violin took on, largely because the the change from Catholicism to Protestantism had banned funeral rites. Now, as as I'm sure you're aware, at the time when this change took place, um, Catholicism was still deeply embedded, and so a great many people took to the idea of having a violinist play the rhythms and melodies that the priest had previously intoned, the Catholic priest had previously intoned at funerals. And that was the origins of the whole thing. By playing music that imitated this, only Catholics would recognize what was actually being said in the music. The Protestants wouldn't want to acknowledge that they understood what was going on because then they'd be acknowledging that they had knowledge of the Catholic um, funeral service. So this, th- that was how it all started, with this suggestion of, of something from a previous age. And this battle between Protestantism and Catholicism was something that would carry on for many, many years and eventually um, did almost destroy the guild. Now, I want to get to Gretchen Fleiss. Gretchen Fleiss he, he was unquestionably the great amongst funerary violin. Every tradition has those people that come along, often after it started, many generations sometimes, that crystallised the essence of it. And Gretchen Fleiss was the great funerary violinist who the essence, the sort of funerary violin equivalent of, of Beethoven or Jimi Hendrix. He, he was the guy that recognised that it wasn't just about solemnity and marching in 4-4. He, he wrote pieces that described the flight of the soul. He wrote pieces that, that described the dream of the dead. He wrote pieces that were marches but in 3-4, which um, was, originally came from somebody who'd been injured in battle. Um, but... <laughs> ultimately became a, a, a great tradi- and an solid tradition. The three-four funeral march w- dominated throughout the 19th century. Now, I, I would love to play you one of the, the works, um, The, uh, the sombre Coquetry of Death, which is one of the great Gretchen Fleisch works. I've been banned from playing it on the violin, but I have a plan. It occurs to me, the the essence of Gretchenfleisch's music is that you have a drone underneath, usually the G-string. He loved the G-string. It's a drone and a melody um, done in a very particular kind of personality. And it occurred to me that you can actually replicate, to a large extent, the gist of that, on the bagpipes. (laughs) So please imagine, this is the beautiful plaintive strains of a violin.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs>
2: Now, we know so much about Flies's work because of the Hildesheim trunk. The Hildesheim trunk was a trunk full of music that was found in a, a disused cemetery outside a small country church near Hildesheim in Germany. Uh, we don't know how it got there. We know that ha- it was half-rotted through, but within this trunk was the, the, what we know of, the, the, the complete works of, of Herr Flies. Now, he inspired a number of people shortly thereafter. The, most, the best known of, of which is Pierre Dubuisson. Now, P- Pierre Dubuisson was, was the great French funerary violinist. There's a wonderful account, which I do reproduce in full in my book of a, um, one of his funerary jewels in the, in the years after the French Revolution. Now this was a period when you would have f- funerals, um, obviously there, there was a, were a lot of people of importance dying at this time. And um, you would have a funeral where you would have two funerary violinists and the deceased would leave a little fragment of melody. And each of those funerary violinists would take it in turns to improvise upon that piece of melody. And the winner was the one who first brought the crowd to tears. (laughs) Now, Charles Sudbury, I'm very proud of Charles Sudbury. He was our great English funerary violinist. He was the kind of Lord Byron of funerary violin. He was dashing, he was charismatic. He was slightly mad. We have a lot of his diaries. He was a very intense chap. He, he was gay which of course in those days wasn't so acceptable and that, that did lead in part to his downfall but most of all he was ferociously anti-Catholic um, he went on various tours around the country trying to talk about to reveal to people um, the origins of funerary violin and became more and more obsessed with the idea that Catholics were trying to stop it from from getting out there Catholics were trying to repress it now I'm not entirely sure how much of that was paranoia and how much of that was true but Charles Sudbury did die in a very suspicious fire in 1841 at the headquarters of the Guild of Fury Violinists his body was found clutching the original copy of the Erroneous Dirge of George Babcock and um, thereafter the Guild basically became a deeply paranoid organisation Underneath the, the leadership of Matthew Coniston. that we, we campaigned for three years to get a plaque to Charles Sudbury at the original Grosvenor House offices. And finally, in 2007, we managed it. So I'm very proud of that. Now, Matthew Coniston. Uh, Matthew Coniston, I do not like. Um, he was He was a very bitter man. He was deeply paranoid. And it was him who basically shrouded the Guild in a sense of secrecy. He was determined that, the, that they weren't going to be got by the Catholics, as he put it. And so he basically, he was the one that introduced the underground attitude of the Guild. He, he basically had a whole doctrine of secrecy. The Guild members were not allowed to talk about their music. They weren't allowed to talk about what it meant. They weren't allowed to play in public. They had to do it at night when nobody was there. It seems like a fitting time to have funerals, though. I mean, I I can see it nowadays. When I was doing funerary violin, I did suggest that quite often, but um, nobody took me up on it. I had to, you know, I I must admit, I resorted to breaking into cemeteries occasionally just for the joy of, you know, starlight and violin, gravestones, etc. Now, Coniston, he ultimately, he did go slightly mad. And he ended up working as a mute... I don't know those. if you're aware of, of what mutes are. Mutes were the official mourners that people would hire because no, you were no longer able to hire a funerary violinist. So he took on the role of an official mourner because it seemed like a logical sidestep. But within the guilds, this is severely disapproved of. Not as much as going into cabaret, though. <laughs> so I don't mean to get sidetracked. This man, Mano Davina, I, I brought him into the Guild of Funerary Violinists. He was... I I brought him in as a researcher. He rose the role of acting secretary. I invited this man to come in and help me. He, without me realising it, was going around sowing the seeds of my destruction. He was getting in with all of the right people. He pretended to be conservative. He basically sold them the idea that by taking it to America, by making it more trendy, which basically means getting rid of all the subtleties in the playing, all of the ancient traditions that relate to spirit and energy. He got rid of all of those, and he just does big events in cemeteries with an orchestra now. (laughs) Now, I put a lot of effort into trying to maintain the purity of the tradition when I wrote this book, and it really, I I must admit, it does rile me. That, that it's been so dumbed down. Now, um, it was only a few weeks before the book came out that um, a guy in America, I can't remember which bookshop, reported to the New York Times that this book was coming out, and he had suspicions about its veracity, shall we say. Now, it, I must admit, the, the, the majority of what I wrote wasn't entirely true, but history... <laughs> history is a complicated thing as I'm going to go on to reveal history, history is a complicated thing what, what a historian does is they look at the facts and then they fill in the gaps with speculation now I looked at the gaps they were very big <laughs> and I filled them in <laughs> to me that felt like a reasonable thing to do funerary violin it makes sense doesn't it People think the plaintive strains of the violin funerals. Uh, I I wasn't to know quite how well this was going to take off. Um, what I was saying about Mano Davina was not made up. Mano Davina is a real person who is performing funerary violin in America with a big orchestral ensemble. He is doing television interviews where he is claiming that my research is his research. Also, in addition to that, um, an LP has been brought out in America by some, uh, some player I don't know on vinyl. Uh, there's two recordings of particularly the Babcock Dirge that have come out from Japan. There's a Chinese violinist who's specializing in it. I get emails about once every month or so from people who totally believe it, usually from South America, China, or Japan. And I, I don't know quite what to do about this because on the one hand... <laughs> I wrote the book with a tone that I was thinking anybody who knows about European history is going to get that this isn't quite true and it's playing with the facts but it's been published in Australia now and it's been translated into Spanish and come out in South America so these are people who don't have a link with European culture and they believe it's true and I always answer as the ex-acting president of the Guild of Funery Violinists (laughs) because I feel it's not my place to take funerary violin away from them. (laughs) So what did essentially start as a, a bit of fun, a bit of a hoax, what really, if I'm to be honest, why it all started was because I was doing concerts of my own music with a pianist. He said, Rohan, you've really got to start writing some more cheerful music. Audiences want cheerful music, they don't want just morbid, doom laden music. And I thought, no, what I need to do is create a context in which they do just want doom laden music. <laughs> and that's where Funerary Violin originally came from what is most extraordinary is the power of context and this is the lesson we've got to take from this because i created the context of funerary violin and because it admittedly got a bit of publicity i now have a massive following amongst thrash punks and heavy metal fans for solo violin 20th century composed music now i have been in touch with Mano. we have we have had a few discussions about what to do about this but on the other hand I do feel as an artist I put this out into the world as a thing that I wasn't attached I wasn't saying this is my work I wasn't saying I've made this up I was saying here you go (laughs) this is history and the fact that other people are now taking it on and preaching it for me, it feels like they're doing my job for me. And I like that, because it means I can now get on with making other things. That one, of, one, of the other th- that one of the other things that I was most proud of was I got an, a letter from a woman called Sarah Singleton, who's a teen um, book writer, writes sort of fantasy books for teenage girls, and um, but sort of set in a kind of nice source, sword and sorcery fairy tale kind of world. And she sent me this this email saying, um, I wanted to inquire whether Funerary Violin was your copyright or whether it was public domain, because I was thinking of making the Guild of Funerary Violinists a central aspect of one of my books. Now, I wrote back to her saying, you know, as the Guild of Funerary Violinists, we are delighted with anyone promoting our art, <laughs> etc. And she then, about two years later, I received this this teen, teen book um, in which the Guild of Hummery Violinists is portrayed exactly as I present it in my book. The archive is just as chaotic and the the people who work for it are just as stuffy. And for me, that was the ultimate victory. So the question is, what is history? In a hundred years' time, when people are playing this music, if they still are, they're not going to have my name attached to it at all. Um, This music is now out there on vinyl, on CDs, on Spotify, on places that I I certainly haven't put it there. There are three people on YouTube, um, not on YouTube, on Facebook, going by the name Hieronymus (laughs) Gratchenfleiss. None of them are me. So, so, I mean, the lesson in all of this is create, if, if you're an artist, create context. It's all about context. If you can create the right context, then people will lap it up. Thank you very much for your time. Uh,
1: you would have been listening to Rohan Krivacek there with his Art of Funerary Violin story, which. We're disappointed to say didn't didn't go. win, didn't it, win. It didn't didn't go anywhere, did it? Got,
0: well, no, it got it got an honorary mention,
1: didn't it? It did get an honorary mention. But uh, that was that was a few weeks ago now for us. We're at a different festival, or we're just gearing up for another festival. We're now in in the bowels of of the hills of Derbyshire. We're in the wonderfully titled Devil's Ass Cavern, and we're just on the outskirts of a of a village called Castleton. In the Peak District. In the Peak District. Yes, we're here because we're we here for another competition, another storytelling competition, yeah. which is called Deceptive Tales in Dark Places, which is almost like a sort of companion festival for for the one we've been to in, in Kuala Lumpur. Well, they're all over the world. The, uh, we're discovering. They're all over the world. These yeah. sorts of things. So like it's that. it's a wonderful place, and it's it's in stark contrast to, to Kuala Lumpur where we were a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. it's cold and dark and miserable down it here. It is,
0: but it does have bakewell pudding.
1: And so because of because of the lack of success of, of one of our auditorium speakers, we realised that the only solution was to hand over to the professionals
0: in <laughs> in storytelling capacity, which of course is our good selves. Although isn't a it? lot, would disagree with that. Yes, you're right. So I'm I'm, I'm entering one, um, and th- this is this is not so much a tall tale. It's a tale about a tall tale, um, and I'll run it past you, Dave. Okay. Um, essentially, a few years ago, I became the world's only and worst Charles Kennedy impersonator. Now, Charles Kennedy, for those who don't know, was the, for many years the leader of one of Britain's least popular political parties, the Liberal Democrats, uh, famous uh, eloquent speaker and drinker. What what happened was I, I did the right stuff, a TV show called The Right Stuff. I did a few sketches on that, um, and I got a phone call the day after from a lookalikes agency saying. Fabulous work as, as Charles Kennedy love. Um, do you want to sign on as a look-alike? And I said, well, I look, I look nothing like him. You know, I'm, I'm chubby and that's it. So I went on to do these various these gigs and it got bigger and bigger. I mean, I, and it genuinely did. I got on the, the front page of um, the Metro as famously the worst look-alike ever. I said, look at this, Charlie. And, and have I got news for you with Paul Merton saying, who's he supposed to be? And things like that, you know, got really big. So I managed to build a one-man show out of all this, this nonsense that happened. I had an article in The Observer about it and everything that I'd written. But at the start of the show, I said to everyone, there is one fact I'm going to tell you tonight, or one thing that's not true. Everything else is true, however unlikely it's true. If you can spot the thing that's not true, I'll give you ticket money back. And I did this, and no one spotted it. And what I did was I thought so amazingly, blatantly, obviously, a lie. And I couldn't believe that no one called it. And what it was, was I said that Charles Kennedy had got wind of my sort of fame as as a bad he impersonator contacted his officer contacted me and said look you're actually doing some good to the cause because it's a laugh people like it can you please make uh, we'll fund it can you please make a, a sort of hip-hop video with yourself as Charles Kennedy. I can only remember the chorus, I think. Uh, I'm in the middle, not the left or the right. I'm in the middle, and I'm up all night. I'm in the middle, and I'm talking shite. I'm in the middle, and I'm all right. You know, that was the main bit. And uh, I can't, it was was quite, you know, I wrote the tune and everything. And I thought, you know, it's pretty amateurish and and rubbish. They're probably gonna get that this is not a professional job, you know. Um, No one called it. I showed the video. And and uh, no no everyone went yeah that's fine that's that's entirely believable that's true just goes to show if you're going to tell a lie, make it the most unlikely big you know Hitler was right tell the big lie because no one spots it. Anyway, that's a kind of paratall tale really. So I don't this, know if we'll win is, with that.
1: Well, this is the story we're we're submitting in about an hours about yeah. an hour's time, isn't it? So yes. uh, well, um, well let's let's keep our let's fingers keep, crossed. Keep God, our fingers
0: that, crossed. Waters hit my head now.
1: well dear listeners we're now at a third festival we are sat by a rather lovely roaring fire and it is uh, we've got just, a uh, we've got a cloudless night break up stick. There we go. we've got a cloudless night above us we've got uh, a sky heavy with stars we've got uh, probably a full moon. Looks like a full moon, doesn't it? It does. Well, it's a hunter's moon. Hunter's it, moon. It is. This is fun. This is. I'm really enjoying this. This. Uh, this, this is festival you number three. You Can't
0: beat, can you? You can't beat being in the open air at night. It makes you want to tell
3: stories. It does. Sitting, sitting Scaring as we are by the fire. Story.
1: So we're waiting for um, quite a few people to turn up to, to for this festival to kick off. It's called the Fireside Festival. Uh, no mm. surprise. Uh, set up by a lady called called Joanna Cherry, and we're in Baldock in in Hertfordshire, and what we're about to take part in. And I think about half an hour's time, I'm going to be. We we didn't fare so well, did we? At no, the, we. Uh, at the my, previous
0: one, mine one didn't win. It wasn't really a tall tale, I suppose. Thinking about it, was it? It was just a tale about a tall tale. So I suppose I'm no surprise in the ring. But I think we've got better chance with yours, Dave.
1: Yeah. So the story that I'm about to tell, it's not my story. It's a it's an incredible story back from the 1950s about a a book called The Third Eye that was written by uh, a Tibetan called Doctor Tuesday Lobsang Rampa and it was published in 1956 and became the UK's best-selling book on Tibet and is still to this day the UK's best-selling book on Tibet. It sold millions of copies. Really? And it's full of extraordinary stories about how Rampa as a small boy was sent to a Surrey and had the painful operation at the age of seven of having the third eye drilled uh, into <laughs> his forehead. He talks about yogic flying and meeting abominable Snowman. Now, not many people have been to Tibet, you know, from England in the in the nineteen fifties. Still uh, haven't. But there were were a few uh, Tibetologists, and a, a few were were not convinced by some of the details in in Ramper's book, and they they investigated him and found him not actually to be a Tibetan lama as he claimed, right. But a plumber <laughs> from Cornwall called Cyril Hoskins, who <laughs> who had fallen out of a tree one afternoon whilst owl spotting. <laughs> This is true. Uh, This is true. And had put his back out, couldn't work for six months, and by some leap of faith reinvented himself as a a Tibetan Lama. He didn't even own a passport. He'd never left the UK. Um, And when, (laughs) when quizzed about this... In an interview, he said, "He said, Oh yes, of course. So I probably didn't make it clear in my book. No, no, of course, I've never actually been to Tibet. But <laughs> when I was lying half-strangled by my own binoculars at the foot of this apple tree one afternoon, <laughs> I, I sort of entered the astral plane, and there I swapped bodies with a with oh, a, with a, with a that's Tibetan handy. lama. That's and handy. T- so whether there was ever in 1956 a Tibetan lama?" claiming to be a, Corn- a Cornish plumber and writing books about how to... How, how to mend the bend- stopcock. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately it's, it's, we don't know. Can you still buy this book? You can still buy the books, yeah, yeah. Is it on preface, but by the way, this is all absolute balls sort or of anything? <laughs> He insisted that, that all of his books uh, started with, with a, a tagline that said everything in my books is true. <laughs> <laughs> he even did an album of, uh, of, of, of meditation. But this is pretty much our, our last chance, isn't it? Yeah. At, at the Fireside Festival. This is good I, this is a good one. I think it's a cracking story, but we're up against some, some stiff competition, so uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Here we go, put that fire out. Can you, uh, can you pass that sausage?
0: Yeah. Oh, God dear. Oh, you dropped it in the fire. Sorry. Ah, <sighs> well, there we go. It was a disappointment again, wasn't it? Well, it, second isn't bad, Dave. Second's not bad. I guess you you can't
1: compete with a story about a chap who fell into a whale's vagina. There, I didn't you? even believe it, to be honest with you. It's
4: nonsense. Hello, yeah. guys. Okay, I've got your train. Where's our
1: producer, Lance? Train coffees. Oh, thanks. For you. Oh it's Nothing.
4: British. It's British Rail Coffee. Is, so is it? So is that a well, they've been holding latte? it for twenty-five odd years. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, they don't have soya latte. They get that warm disgusting mm, brown lovely and that's lighter warm disgusting brown cheers I think anything oh. else you need you boys need you oh, what?
0: Win, win a <coughs> story competition yeah that would be nice I've yeah. a story have you Lance you mentioned that now what What? What have you got I'll
4: tell you a story about how I got into the charts with a hit take oh, no symbol as a uh, Swedish dance act do it So this was back in the mid-1990s. Techno was sort of rising up and becoming more uh, mainstream. And it was considered vaguely fashionable to be Scandinavian and to come from sort of more exotic places. And my flatmate at the time ran a music magazine. And I used to write reviews. I always used to put joke reviews in every month. And I invented this whole kind of fake... Scandinavian techno scene of kind of obscure music. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and there was an act called Lavender Filter and there was an act called Peace Killer. Anyway, the guy who ran the magazine got called up by an A&R man who worked for, who remembers Terrorvision. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I bought their
0: album. I was, you, I was the guy who bought their album. They were, they were hard American rock via Oldham. Yes,
4: that's right. They were terrible. And um, he oh, wanted to catch Oblivion
0: the, was a cracking single. Nothing was, wrong with Oblivion.
4: For some people say... Which yes. was their their power rock terrible ballad. They wanted to catch the techno bus. Right, and he wanted a uh techno actually. He said to Sean, who ran the magazine, Can you recommend any techno acts? And I was like, Well, uh, let's give him one of my made up Scandinavian bands. And uh, he said, Oh, yeah, yeah, Peace Killer are great. Oh, let's hear some. You know, we were like, Well, what, what the guy wants a Peace Killer record, so we got a do you remember Spiral Tribe, the techno acts Indeed, we got a Spiral Tribe 12 inch with a <laughs> I'm white out label. Loop <laughs>
0: I Oh, I remember Spiral we, Tribe. We, we
4: just wrote Peace Killer on it and then gave it to him because was also the, time, the days of like so many white labels, white labels, yeah, you yep. just bung it on, yeah, loads of free white labels any act so yes oh I like these guys and and then they kind of booked us in the studio and they were going to give us several grand for doing this remix (laughs) and Orlando my friend who's now in the Alabama 3 and I were kind of agreed to go in but then we had to walk into this big gleaming studio and go we've never made a techno record (laughs) and we're not (laughs) Swedish (laughs) and the woman who's the engineer was just brilliant she just helped us through for two days she basically made
1: the record did she know
4: did you tell her or not? we had to go look this is a scam there's no <laughs> such thing as peace killer don't tell EMI we're saying to EMI that's what God's said and we had to kind of fake it up wow and we sort of put it out and then we sent them the dat and they said oh, I want to talk to these guys oh no this is getting worse so then he rang me up at work and I had to pretend to be Swedish <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant, because I pretended that my English is so bad. Where Comment were you lines. working on, at the on. time? At the BBC. Fantastic. I was... can, we, can, I, can we hear the Swedish accent? I do, oh, Pete's killer, yes, good. Uh, I'll do your gangster <laughs> remix next time. Very gangster? And he was like, gangster? And I was like, yeah, gangster, it'll be gangster. And it was, you know. <laughs> Did you Swedish accent? It sounds that more Jewish I so like,
3: I'll
4: do your gangster, it's but not the, a problem. The gang- <laughs> <laughs> <was it? laughs> anyway. They then put it out, probably distributed it around the clubs, with everyone going, who's Peace Killer? And then being confused. But the beauty was that it charted at number 12.
0: No way. Wow. 12.
4: I had to go and buy my own copy in, in HMV.
0: So you basically charted with a mythical band that you'd made up.
4: Yeah, but it gets worse. There's the little little kicker in the tail.
0: Which yeah. is, Peacekiller sued you.
4: No.
0: <laughs> it's
4: worse that um, Orlando didn't talk to me for two years afterwards and fell out with me quite oh. badly, my dear old friend. And I eventually I said, why didn't, what's wrong? He said, well, you didn't give me that money from EMI. And I said, oh. I didn't get the money from EMI. And Sean, whose magazine it was, pocketed the, all the money from oh. EMI and didn't
0: distribute it. Oh, dear. Oh dear. So, peace killer, that's that, that really did kill the peace, Yeah. not well,
4: Yeah, we're, we're friends now
0: that was my story. That's a good story. That's that's so good it has to be true. That is that is a good tilt all tale. Why didn't you tell us, Lance? Why didn't you tell he us? You that's never let me in, guys. You could have done that at the competition. She'd be on the other side of the. I just go and get coffee as. Far that's as better than so. whale vaginas. That is. It
4: is better than whale vaginas.
0: Unless they're a band. <laughs> <laughs> Let's form a new band. Whale vaginas. They're great. Form uh, Fiji. Yes. Yeah, that sounds... <laughs> you the accent. That's pleasable. Uh, hey, they talk a like this nice in the Fiji. <laughs> hey,
3: that's what do you want? Swedish.
0: No! <laughs> oh. David. David. Oh. Your mother's made your tea now. Da,
4: da. Come
0: on. we Come
4: downstairs. We are recording the, 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 the podcast, Mr Bramwell. Yes. Can, yes. can, can we just give us another podcast? He's
1: 47, Mr Bramwell. It's
4: our podcast. Yeah,
1: come we- on. Do you just have another few
0: minutes, Dad? Two minutes, come on. We're being mother, on a train. It's all on the, the table What's for tea? We've got no, fish fingers. No, no. Fish fingers, come on, let's forget this. Let's save this off. Mr. Bramwell's tea. made it especially for you as well, David. Okay, come on. great. And I, can't you well. I can't eat fish. I can't eat fish. Oh, you can yeah. have the chips, don't you worry. He's, he's he's I him. can't
4: him. eat chips. Can't you? We Can't we finish our podcast, please, Mr.
1: Come downstairs, come on. we are messing missing about... I guess we're going to go... Turn those effects off, come on. Turn those effects off.
4: Come okay. on. Well, bye bye then. Here we go Come then. Come
1: on.
4: It's the end of the show. Yeah, I guess so. Sorry. Stop, yeah. I do like fish
1: and chips. Got you your tickets. Tickets, please. You. Tickets. Come on. Tickets.
3: Tickets, please. Ooh. Tickets. Ooh. Tickets, please. Oh. Oh.
1: Oh. What time is it? Oh. God, that was a weird dream. God, I was dreaming that I was in some trapped in some Kafkaesque nightmare podcast that just seemed to go on forever and have no meaning or purpose to it. God, thank God that's... Thank God that's all over.
0: Weird dream. Just dream I was doing a podcast. I don't I was dreaming, Dave Bramwell dreaming that he was doing a podcast that just went on and on and on and just made no sense. It was all about tall tales and didn't go anywhere, it just seemed to go on forever. Fuck oh, thank God that's not real. Wait a minute! The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. UK, Talks from The Auditorium are featured in Ernest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like The Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes.
1: I am a bit confused now. Yeah. So so he wakes up after I've woken up.
0: Yeah. Or he does what? Well. So then I'm dreaming your dreams. You so when did the, effects yeah. the
1: effects finish? The effects finished. They finished when Andrew top. came in. Comes Andrew comes in as yeah. your
4: dad. And then the effects end. Okay.
0: It, is it going to be confusing for the list? I don't understand. No, because it's a, it's, it's layers, s- layers. self-referential. It's, 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 you know, called Layers, and upon, layers and upon
4: layers upon that's, layers. That's yeah. the idea. And then at the end, we should really have a bit with us discussing how we've kind of made this edifice. And so that's, a, a, the yeah,
1: that's The journey within the journey, isn't it? Idea. Or would
4: that, would that not work? Yeah, that that, that, that wouldn't is,
1: work. It's a podcast going up its own arse. Really so it really is, yeah. What, yeah. an over and over again? Definitely
4: not.